Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Weissman. I'm the editor of Modern Retail, and I'm really excited to be joined by Sarah Kunst, the managing director of Clio Capital. Um, I'm really excited to dig into a lot of different topics. I want to talk about just the general VC investing space, what she and others are looking for in consumer-facing companies, and just how everything has kind of blown up over the last few months for a variety of reasons. So Sarah, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, this is fun. Let's start a little bit about your background. Um, I was doing a little bit of research and I read Mm -hmm. that right out of college you started at Chanel. Is that correct? I did. I did. I uh, started my career in fragrance marketing. Wow. But it was 2008 and there was a recession. And so I thought that would be the craziest economic downturn I ever saw. But I have a feeling that we have not seen anything yet. Sarah, why don't you begin with just talking a little bit about your background? Because when you first graduated college, you started out Chanel. That's correct? I did. My first job out of college uh, was at Chanel in fragrance marketing, uh, but it was 2008. And so I thought that would be the worst economic (laughs) downturn I've ever seen. And turns out uh, we have not seen anything yet. So, you know, (laughs) it's uh, interesting for especially for retail. Absolutely. So can you just walk me through sort of how you started out in the more luxury space and then what got you into startups and where you are now? Yeah. So I started, you know, my career at Chanel um, in college. I had interned uh, at a luxury e-commerce company uh, called Vive that's no longer around. Um, And then the summer after that, interned at Cody Beauty, which, you know, is now probably best known for buying um, the Kardashian and Jenner's beauty brands. Um, So, you know, had, had had some some relevant experience in both of those sectors. And so when a friend from my first internship called me, and said, hey, I'm at Chanel now, and you know, we we need somebody in fragrance. I think that's what you did last summer. I said, you know what I did last summer. And so that <laughs> it ended up working out perfectly. That was a terrible joke, but I like it. Um, but it ended up working out perfectly. So, you know, from there, um, I I jumped in um to fragrance marketing at at a really interesting time. You know, Chanel is one of the more interesting, I think, um, luxury brands and that it absolutely. is still family owned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what, so how, what, how did you get from, from Chanel into like where you are now? Yeah. So, so before, uh, before, you know, when I was in college, I worked for, um, for Apple as a, as a campus rep. Um, so I went to Michigan state, which is a very large school, um, but it is in the middle of literally nowhere in <laughs> Michigan. And so, uh, you know, for me, I, there, you know, to, to, to put it in perspective, right. If you go to NYU, there are God knows how many Apple stores in New York. There are, you know, at Stanford, which is a tiny school um, south of San Francisco, there's about three Apple stores right around campus, like walking distance to campus. Michigan State has the closest Apple stores over an hour away. So, you know, we, us campus reps, were really, were really working hard because we were, we were the only people who could tell you that your Microsoft office would run on an Apple, which was our <laughs> big marketing message at the time. Um, And so... Give, let's go into the, like the background of Clio Capital. It mm-hmm. started in 2018. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what what got you? How did you? What was the sort of thesis behind it? How did it start? What what have you been doing with it? How have the last two years gone? Yeah. So you know, I um I had after Chanel, I went into you know startups, and I I did product and business development at, at uh, several different startups um, that led me out to Silicon Valley and 
when one of the startups had run out of money, it was a fashion startup. Um, you know, I, uh, one of my investor friends, you know, said, Hey, you seem smart. And like you, you know, every time I ask you questions about, you know, your ideas about spaces, you give me these really long detailed answers. Um, it seems like you'd be a good investor, you know, or, or are you interested? Uh, and I said, sure. So, you know, that, that was sort of the start. Um, and from there, just really got the kind of investing bug and, and, you know, ended up leaving VC for a while to start a company, um, in, in the sports and fitness space. But, you know, uh, when I was sort of thinking about what to do next after that company shut down after three years, um, I picked up some other experience, um, you know, in the venture space and had kept my passion for it. Um, and so thought about joining a fund, looked around, didn't see any funds that I felt like, you know, I was absolutely dying to be a part of. And so decided, uh, you know, that I had a unique kind of thesis and understanding of the market and, and wanted to launch my own. Wow. And so what, how would you describe the thesis? So, you know, our focus, uh, the, the, the fund does kind of two things. Um, the, the thing that we're sort of most externally known for, um, that's different than most of venture, um, is we run a scout program, um, and so scout programs, basically, they're, they're pretty much confined to the West Coast, but they're basically when um, a venture fund pays for you to angel invest. Um, and so the, the thought behind that is, you know, these these funds have all this money, but they only have a limited number of people. And there are plenty of people um, who who don't have money to invest, but who do, you know, who are the first ones to to try Glossier and, you know, track down mm -hmm. the founder because they love the brand so much or, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, if, if you give those people capital um, and have them angel invest and, and then kind of split the, the proceeds, uh, you'll probably find some really interesting deals. So so my fund, usually really big funds do that. My fund mm -hmm. is very small, um, but we do that. And we have an amazing group of of female founders who are our are, are scouts. Um, so we have people like Molly Chen, who is a co-founder at Birchbox, um, and Melody McCloskey, who is a, a the founder of Style Seat, you know, and, and so some really interesting people. And so that that's a big part of kind of our our differentiation. And then the other piece of it, um, you know, is that that uh our, our, my personal investing thesis. So I also do direct deals and and those deals are really focused on this area. Not as much sort of direct to consumer, right? Um, but but more focused on what I call complicated consumer, which is if you kind of picture the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's the stuff on the bottom. We spend a lot mm. of time and money looking at the stuff on the top, right? What'll make you just kind of feel better in the moment. <laughs> um, and then there's the whole thing on the bottom of where do you live? What do you eat? You know, how how do you feel loved and like you're not going to go crazy, especially right now during during COVID. Right. So, you know, those those are the areas that I focus on. Can you give me some examples? What are some some startups you invested in that are at that bottom? The bottom. Um, yeah. yeah. So so in the kind of retail space still, you know, I'm invested in a company called Zero, uh, which is a, a grocery delivery company. It's kind of like good eggs, but um, there's no plastic. And so it's super, super sustainable. Um, and it's it's only in the Bay Area right now, like out San Francisco, but um, it's expanding to all of California and then nationwide. And so, you know, that's a great example of, of you really need food, especially right now. Um, but how can you do it in a kind of more sustainable way? 
um, or Style Seat, which I mentioned. I'm, I'm an investor in that as well. Um, and that's sort of part of my other side of my thesis called the future of, of income, which is, you know, sort of similar to the future of work, but it's less about, hey, here's a tool your boss wants you to use. And it's more, hey, maybe if we if we fund enough really interesting tools, you won't necessarily need a boss because mm-hmm. you can, you know, in the case of Style Seat, be an independent hairstylist who, you know, can work from anywhere because your book of business is owned by an app, you know, not owned, but you own your book of business. It's in an app versus being in, um, you know, in, in a salon's, uh, you know, appointment book. Mm -hmm. Where, what do you think? I feel like there are a lot of investors like in the last few years that have been focusing more on consumer facing. And I agree that Mm -hmm. a lot of them have been on sort of that, that higher sort of niche, there's a certain aesthetic about it. But do you think that the the one thing they've been missing is just sort of focusing on people's needs? Where where else do you think a lot of like VCs have been, have been sort of missing the mark over the last few years? Yeah. Especially as, yeah. mm -hmm. And and it's not really missing the mark, right? It's just different. It's just different things, right? Like I love, you know, Mexican food. Should every restaurant be a Mexican restaurant? I personally (laughs) think yes, but you know, other people like it's nice, I guess, to have, to have a variety. And so, so, you know, that, that's kind of the same thing with investing. And, you know, I'm I'm friends with a lot of awesome consumer investors, um, like the team over at Forerunner. You know, and and I think that a lot of it, consumer investors are going a little bit more into supply chain as well and logistics. But mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly still you know I, I don't invest a ton in direct to consumer, but I certainly buy a ton of direct to yeah. consumer. Um, so I'm I'm certainly a big fan of that. I just uh, you know it, it's just a space that I think other people are better suited to directly invest in. Mm-hmm. Has your focus at all changed over the last few months? Would you say than than when you first started? So the nice thing about the space that I focus on is it's pretty recession proof, right? And again, if you mm-hmm. kind of go back to that Maslow's thing, uh, uh, yeah. hierarchy of needs and the future of income, I would argue that everybody in the past few months has seen a bigger need for things like food and shelter yeah. and feeling safe and feeling, you know, sane and having <laughs> income. Um, and so, so you know, I, I can't say I'm I'm lucky because that feels very wrong to say in the current circumstances. But you know, it's certainly true that that I'm investing in things that, you know, are, are, there are a lot of things we thought were recession proof that turned out not to be, or or that Mm -hmm. maybe are recession proof, but we're not pandemic proof. Um, the good news is, you know, you only need to be pandemic proof about once every hundred years. Um, but you know, the, the reality is a lot of the stuff I invest in, you know, you just still need it. They're pretty basic needs. Have you been seeing an influx of more people pitching you these days, or has that, has that sort of velocity or rate at all been impacted? Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't think it's hugely changed. I mean, it, there's a few different sides to it, right? On one hand, um, it certainly, you know, can feel like a scarier time to start a company. Um, yeah. and, and if you have a job, the, you know, leaving it and, and then what happens maybe if your spouse loses a job or somebody in your family and, you know, the, the sort of, you know, safety net that you maybe were going to depend on, you know, while you started your company is gone. Um, that That's definitely a real thing. Um, but also, you know, layoffs have been a real thing. And so mm-hmm. if you get laid off during a time when it's it's been really hard to find, you know, new jobs, then there kind of isn't a huge downside to starting a company because, you know, you can either like at some point you run out of Netflix, right? And, <laughs> and apparently no one's going to watch Quibi. So it's sort of like, okay, I guess I'll start a company. And and I don't mean that to sound flippant, but, you know, my 
my fund actually, uh, we did a fellowship um, kind of at the, the beginning um, in April through through June, um, where we saw all these tech layoffs happening. I think there was one week where there were over 30,000 layoffs in tech alone, um, you know, and we saw all these amazing people who, you know, six months before that, if we had asked them, hey, do you want to come start a company? They would have said, absolutely not. I love my job. And now all of a sudden, you know, the, the job wasn't an option. And, and so, you know, we we launched a fellowship for laid off tech workers to, you know, explore starting companies. And it was a huge success. We had, you know, hundreds of applicants and we ended up with, uh, you know, over 100 people in the program. Um, they started, you know, almost 20 projects um, and about 10 of them looked like wow. they're going to turn into real companies. And this was, you know, we're a very small fund. So this wasn't, you know, us flying everybody to a private <laughs> island for six weeks, right? It was, hey, we have a Slack channel, right? Shout out, shout out to my friend Stuart who gave us, who helped us get a Slack channel and, you know, a Zoom and that was about it. But but it was enough to, you know, to, to when you provide space for people, a lot of creativity just kind of flourishes. Absolutely. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of how you came up with that idea, how you sort of made the because I wanted to ask you, it's mm-hmm. called Chrysalis, right? Chrysalis. Yeah. So so the, the name is like very like sad girl Instagram quotes of me. Right. Because it's like just when the butterfly thought its life was over, it turned into or whatever the caterpillar thought its life is over. It turned into a butterfly. And, you know, literally that is something that like comes up on my discover tab when like things are getting dark. Um, but I you know, it's it's true. Right. And and for me, you know, the experience in, in 2008 of, you know, being a 22 year old in New York and like get mm-hmm. this dream job. And then I literally remember sitting at my desk one day saying, who's Bernie Madoff, right? And the (laughs) 22-year-old knows Bernie Madoff's name. You know that the world is about to end. And so- you know, but but on the flip side, if that hadn't happened, I'd probably be on the show right now as, you know, a senior vice president of marketing at Chanel, which would be <laughs> amazing. And my friends are, who are still there are like dripping in Chanel and are so beyond chic all the time. Um, but I think this is a the, my path. And, and I truly don't know if I would have found it if I were even, you know, a few years older or younger. Um, mm-hmm. So so having seen kind of how important timing is and, and then, you know, when that timing happens, how important it is to to have some you know a, a new path to start out on really inspired me. And, and there have been a lot of VCs, um, you know, far richer than I am, who sort of say, you know, it's time to build. Yeah. Um, and then you say, great, how? And they say, oh, I don't know, I'm I'm, I'm on my private jet. I, I don't have that <laughs> right? And so I'm like, it's time to build. I have no money for you, but I can hold space and I can give you insights and I can introduce you to people, and it seems to be working. So that's, yeah, that brings up uh, something I've just been trying to battle with as a writer and someone who watches this space. I feel like uh, it was in June or May when It's Time to Build was said, but there was mm-hmm. also, there, there were, I feel like one of the biggest issues, both in tech, but also in consumer-facing brands, is a big issue of it being a very insular pipeline. And mm-hmm. I feel like specifically, uh, like with Chrysalis and, and other things, there 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 are a lot of people who are trying to expand that. Do you think that there are, do you think that, now is a different time than, say, a couple of years ago, than, say, 10 years ago when there have been movements to try to expand the, the, the business space, specifically in the VC world. What do you how, how are you viewing like just sort of an economic down downturn and then mm-hmm. like a lot of cultural tumult is, is are, 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 I know it's like yeah. a, civil, a civil war part two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and during the <laughs> pandemic, it's like really quite 
may you live in interesting times is a curse. Never forget that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's been really interesting. You know, I, I having been through the Me Too stuff just a few years prior to that, you know, and, and then even before all the Me Too stuff in kind of 2017, you know, I was the first person to, to bring, you know, civil rights leader, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, um, to sit down with a group of, of venture capital, black venture capital investors, like back in, I think, 2015, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is, these are conversations that have been going on, right? Um, race is a complicated topic in America, but one thing that is not complicated for the most part is looking around and noticing um, if people are black or not, right? Yeah. And so it's pretty obvious that that most spaces in business, um, certainly in techs included in that, you know, are not particularly diverse. And so, you know, that's been an ongoing thing and change has been really slow. And, and the Me Too movement sort of jump-started it a little bit for women, but primarily, you know, for, mm-hmm. for white women. And so this moment, you know, is is absolutely horrifying and painful as it's been, I think has been a wake-up call. Um, let's just say my phone's been ringing off the hook, right, the past couple months mm-hmm. with, with friends who run big tech companies, um, huge venture capital firms, and they're all reaching out, you know, kind of saying the same thing, which is we think we have a problem. And I'm like, oh, okay, you just know this. <laughs> right? But they're, yeah. they're, you know, and they're saying, we think we have a problem. What do we do? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, a woman, uh, Tiffany Bell, you know, kind of coined the phrase hire or wire, right? Like mm-hmm. that's how you fix these things. Um, and, you know, not to negate, there's been a lot of kind of back and forth of like, you know, over, over Memorial Day weekend when every brand, it felt like including VC brands and tech brands were like releasing their Black Lives Matter statement, you know, is that good? Is that bad? I think that's obviously good. And it's mm-hmm. insane that we live in a world where that's even like a debate that you have to say. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's clearly not enough, right? You acknowledging that my life matters is like beyond table stakes. <laughs> and so now the questions are like, what do you do about that? What does yeah. that mean if my life matters? Right. And so, you know, to, which, which I guess to listeners, I'm, I'm black if you don't have a picture of me. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that there is, is some change happening right now. Um, the awesome thing, particularly in retail, is that there's never been a lack of of people of color, of women who are starting brands, mm-hmm. right? And these brands have been here, you know, certainly when it comes to cultural influences, you know, I can't think of a space that is more impacted um, by, you know, Black and Hispanic people um, who are often so underrepresented on boards and C-suites and, you know, in, in, in sort of even just in rank and file business positions, but are so disproportionately driving culture culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so, I mean, imagine what, you know, the last, the last 10 years of fashion would look like without, you know, even controversial as he is Kanye West or Beyonce or, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's just, you can't really, right. What, what would music look like without Jay Balvin, you know, or even Pitbull? I'm, I'm aging myself with that reference, but it's true. (laughs) Or JLo, you know, so, so it's something that I think, the good news is that while the, the bad news is, you know, we have a problem, we need to fix it and it's long overdue. The good news is, particularly in retail and things that touch the consumer side, it's incredibly easy to fix because these people are already there. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, Aurora James, um, who runs an amazing brand um, that the CDFA has, has honored over the years called Brother Vise, um, she launched a, a 15% pledge. And the idea being that if 15, if, if 15% mm-hmm. of Americans, uh, of America are black people, 
people, then um, major retailers should have that represented in their stores, right? And we know that Black and Hispanic customers are massive consumers. Um, and, you know, you look at anything from hair to fashion to, to you know, just any any vector, right? Mm-hmm. Any, any marketing agency can tell you that, you know, if you have a Black and Hispanic customer, they are really loyal and they spend a lot. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to it, it seems like a pretty normal ask to say, hey, you know, if, if we're coming into your stores, if we're, you know, going onto your websites, if we're buying your brands, then, you know, you should have a, a you know, kind of population parity representation mm-hmm. of us when it comes to, and, you know, to be clear, right, if you expend, if you extend that also to Hispanic people, and then that's no longer a 15% pledge, it should look more like 30%, right? And if yeah. you expand it to spending in certain brands, that's probably looking more like 50 to 80%, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things where we're saying, look, you know, we're, we are literally keeping your lights on and we would like, we would like to be represented. Um, and, and the response has been amazing. Um, you know, it, it, they've had really big brands like West Elm commit to doing these things. Um, and it's really heartening. And, and the good news is West Elm doesn't have to say, we'd like to do this now, you know, we need to spend five years creating these brands or helping people create these brands. These mm-hmm. brands exist. They just haven't yeah. been given, you know, the platform. Yeah, that that sounds exactly right. One of the things that I I always try to, I always think about, and I'd love to get your thoughts, especially with sort of the VC, how, how it works with VCs giving mm-hmm. funding to cer- certain companies, is that it seems like, especially in the consumer facing space, they were catering to a very certain voice. They were uh, catering to a very certain kind of person. And it was usually, you know, in 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 the advertising pictures of predominantly white mm-hmm. models, et cetera. And it seems like yeah. that a lot of VCs had sort of an ideal, typical idea of like, these are the kinds of companies we should launch for these kinds of uh, consumers. Do you, when you're talking with VCs now, are mm-hmm. their minds opening about sort of the, how there are so many different kinds of consumers of different race and uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Are, are you seeing that more of an understanding that like there is yeah, such an yeah. open like wallets there for for other t- types of consumers? Especially yeah, and, consumers? and I think it's both, right? It's also who's getting in front of these investors because VCs don't really pick, VCs pick from, you know, VC is like being a, um, it's like being a, a customer at a restaurant, right? Not a chef. So <laughs> you come in and somebody hands you a menu and it might be a huge menu, but you can only really pick what's on the menu, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of it, I think, is that VCs have had a limited menu, right? So to mm-hmm. go back to my kind of Mexican food restaurant example, like if you're only going to a Mexican restaurant and then you're like, it's so weird, I've never ordered sushi. Well, duh, they don't serve it here, right? And so mm-hmm. for a lot of VCs, the places they were going to take the meetings to find the people to meet with to invest in the companies, right, were were their own personal network. And I have this like bizarre heuristic that I love, which <laughs> is I love looking at people's wedding photos, not for like the bride's photos, although I'm very into that too, but the <laughs> bridesmaids, right? The bridesmaids and the groomsmen. Often the bridesmaids are so similar that like you can't even get more than two shades of variation in hair color. Mm-hmm. Right. Even when it's not a natural hair color, like they yeah. all go to the same girl for highlights. Right. So mm-hmm. when you look at that and you go, oh, I wonder why the world is so non-diverse. Like if your bridesmaids, right, can't even get like a dark brunette and like a redhead together because mm-hmm. that would be too much diversity in your friend group, apparently, then of course the world looks the way it does. And so, you know, the I think that. The problem is that VCs haven't been necessarily having a wide enough aperture of where they're finding deal flow. And, you know, and and then there's also certainly the point of, um, you know, 
launching a company and and doing it at a really high level, right? I'll return to the Glossier example. And, you know, I love Glossier, but, you know, Emily Weiss, we'd all known her for years from TV and, you know, and and then doing this, this blog. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, she was from a relatively secure socioeconomic background, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you have that money, even if it's not billions of dollars, right, when you have you no know, student loan debt, when you have family who can help you rent an apartment in New York, right, whatever it is, then it's a lot easier to get started building a company in New York, which, or even write that first internship. You could argue that without the, that first Teen Vogue internship that put her on TV and kind of put her on, on every elder millennial's radar forever, that this whole endeavor would have been a much more uphill battle, even though she obviously always had an amazing understanding of brand, of product, of what people wanted, right? Mm-hmm. But who can take an unpaid internship? Mm-hmm. Yep, and exactly. the, the answer is people who can pay for stuff some other way, right? Yeah. So, so you know, and, and none of this, right? It's not about Emily. It's about this system that we live in that, that you know, it's not even about media, really, because God knows media doesn't have money anymore to pay people, right? <laughs> so, it, you know, it, but That's it's correct. just, it, we live in the system. And so, like, how do you, and, and it takes a lot of work, right? I, if you were trying to say, how do we reverse engineer this so that the next Glossier is started by women of color? It's not, I would argue, you know, trying to fix every single point along that funnel. It's just recognizing that's the funnel. And then, you know, the next time some great girl comes out of Vogue and is in front of you, say, awesome. And then mm-hmm. go tell, you know, go make sure that you're also looking at 10 other beauty brands, right? That that aren't that don't have somebody from Vogue partially, like I was actually supposed to work in media. This is like a really random tangent, but I was (laughs) supposed to, I had an internship offer instead of at Cody, I had an internship offer for InStyle magazine, right? And then I found out that it didn't pay Mm -hmm. and I couldn't afford an unpaid internship. So I took the Cody one because it paid, I think $17 an hour, right? Back in like 2007, so kind of a lot of money. Um, And and so that's what I took because, you know, my parents are are middle class and they couldn't afford for me to, I couldn't afford to not have an, to have an unpaid internship while living in New York for a summer, right? So that is is a great example. And, and obviously, you know, my, my career path still ended up amazing. But, you know, that that's kind of a great example of 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 how these things work. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that, of course, it's great to come out of Vogue to start a beauty company, but who can afford to work there in the first place, yeah. right, then helps you kind of open your aperture and go look at people who are coming from other backgrounds, because that's what they could afford to do. I'd love to hear more because specifically with the chrysalis thing, I love that you had a slack room where they were all talking with each other. What was, did they, you know, given that these were all laid off tech workers who likely mm-hmm. needed an income and then were st- hopefully starting their own companies, but were also talking to each other. What was sort of, I, I feel like a lot of the issues that face a lot of both VCs and other companies is that they just aren't talking to others in areas that that are not directly in front of them. How did how did the dynamics of the Slack room play out? Did that actually help them build their own companies or come up with ideas? What what, what were they sort of talking about? Yeah, so you know, I the the Slack was great. We kind of threw them all in there, um, and I'm really obsessed with. Uh, there's a an author and kind of tech person, James Ulcher, and he. Um, um, 
he has this sort of thing from one of his books about how to become an idea machine. Uh-huh. And it, it's really simple, right? Because these people were all kind of mid-career. So they knew how to do their work and they were great at it, right? But there was this other piece of it, that zero to one, um, that often people think is really hard. And it's not hard, it's just binary, right? So mm. coming up with an idea. And it feels so hard, but then you look at it in retrospect. Like my favorite example, right, is how many of us have seen a Jackson Pollock, right? This is the paint spattered everywhere and go, oh, I could do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And you you probably could, but you wouldn't get much money from it in the art world, probably because you're not the first person doing it and saying this is art and here's why. Right. And so it's not the execution. Most of us can execute at something pretty well. Mm -hmm. It's the ideas, you know, that people are scared of, even though ideas are are free. Right. The world is full of ideas. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things we did with that and probably kind of the most transformative thing for their mindset, we definitely made them, you know, we used a service called Icebreaker, um, which is a, a speed kind of networking site, um, video networking. So they got to know each other, you know, a little five minute burst, um, but which was great. And then, you know, talked a lot on Slack. But, but you know, the other thing we did is every day for two weeks, we made them put five ideas every morning into a wow. Slack channel, right? So imagine you wake up and you're like, I don't know, like maybe... Maybe, you know, uh, I'm like trying to look around my apartment, trying to think of an idea desperately, right? Mm-hmm. And this is like how they're thinking, right? Hey, what about an ice bottle? Or, you know, what about a bedside refrigerator uh, that, you know, keeps your keeps your skincare and your water warm and has like a Brita filter in it? I don't know, right? <laughs> so you just throw, but you just throw ideas out, right? And at first it's so hard and weird and I'm kind of good at it and I just totally failed right there. But you No, I love them. They were great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you do it more and more and more. And then it like, then you realize like, oh, ideas are, are not hard, right? They're just like mm-hmm. a weird muscle that you never use, right? Like after you like go roller skating, I'm very TikTok right now. After you go like roller <laughs> skating, right? And you're like, oh my God, what's this weird muscle that hurts? It's not a weird muscle. It's just a muscle you haven't used since you were five and went roller skating, right? Yeah. And then once you go roller skating a few times, it's not sore anymore because you've built it up. And so, you know, ideas are a muscle and, and teaching people that I think was probably the most important part of the program we didn't turn people into founders. We took people that we believed could be founders and we showed them that a lot of what was holding them back was just that kind of zero to one. And Mm -hmm. and that candidly, they didn't even need an idea, right? Because not every person started their own company. A lot of them joined with other people, right? Or somebody threw an idea out and everybody started working on it and kind of riffing on it. And then one person said, I actually love this. I'm going to go build this. Mm -hmm. Who's with me, right? And so that I think was the most important part is teaching people like, this isn't, you know, you, this isn't a divine word of God. You don't wake up one day and there's, you know, like burning, a burning bush telling you, I'm also very into the Bible apparently right now. There's <laughs> not like a burning bush, right? Telling you what to build. You just think about what you like and you play with ideas and, you know, you Google and you say, oh, I think this, you know, whatever beauty fridge would be a great idea. Then you realize there's like thousands of them on Amazon. So mm-hmm. you don't build that and you think of the next thing. Absolutely. All right, we're almost running out of time, but I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on sort of in the next few months to a year, do you have any goals for how many companies you're going to be investing in or just any sort of sense for what sort of the road ahead for Clio is? Yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm really excited and, you know, you mentioned something before about how how a lot of consumer investors, you know, chase kind of like the sexy stuff and and yeah. my my secret is that I'm oh, I mean, I worked at Chanel. I'm obsessed with the sexy stuff, but I think that 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 fixing these big problems in the world is like the sexiest thing to do. And so, mm-hmm. my favorite thing and and if you look on my website, you'll start to notice it in my brands that I've invested in is they tend to be solving kind of inherently unsexy 
problems, but in a really sexy, fun way. Um, and so, you know, areas that I'm really interested in right now that definitely have a consumer side to them, I'm obsessed with like therapy, but not like one-on-one, although I love my therapist, shout out to Jen. <laughs> She's keeping my, keeping me sane during this year, but you know, um, group therapy or couples therapy, like most couples show up at couples therapy and they're basically on the verge of a divorce. And a lot of times when they break up, they say, you know, if we'd done this six months earlier, a year earlier, five years earlier, either we would have saved time because we should have never been together or we probably wouldn't be breaking up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's so obvious. Right. But we just don't do that. And so, you know, in, in, in who we if, if we choose to be partnered with someone that has the biggest impact on our well-being and quality of life. Right. It doesn't matter how many amazing face creams you buy if you absolutely hate the person you're sleeping next to. So, um, you know, that's a space. Those are the kinds of spaces that I think that, you know, taking it out of that sort of super clinical, you know, everything feels like it's very serious and dire and making the brands feel fun and sexy and interesting while still, you know, being highly efficacious um, around things like that, around things like, you know, I just got a pitch this morning um, for for kind of a funeral and end of life planning startup, huh. right? And these are things that we tend to not think can be interesting and sexy, but they, they you know, maybe sexy is the wrong word for funerals, right? But they don't have to feel, you know, outdated and kind of like stayed in like what our grandparents might have used. They can feel just as modern as the rest of our lives. And so that's really the kind of stuff I'm focused on. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. <laughs>